morning comes from Mark chapter 16, picking up where we left off on Friday, Mark chapter 16, verse 1, and we'll read that chapter. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene... Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling uh, trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So far, the reading of God's word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 56, stanzas 3, 4, and 5.
The text that we'll focus on in particular is verses 1 through 8 of Mark chapter 16. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you can see from the points outlined under the title of the sermon, if you have the liturgy sheet, uh, we're going to be approaching this text, Mark 16, uh, much like we did uh, on Friday uh, in the last two chapters, just trying to highlight some of the, the contrasts that jump out, of, uh, jump out at us from these chapters. Uh, so if you remember on Friday, we saw uh, this amazing contrast between the fear and the chaos and hostility and even cruelty of this world over against, when you look at Christ, uh, the obedience to the Father, His love for those for whom He was going to die, uh, and the righteousness with which He died and with which He is dignified after His death. Well, in this chapter, we see as well a contrast being drawn. We see on the part of the disciples and the women, we see fear, we see confusion. Uh, and then we see that contrasted with, with the words of the angel, the hope uh, and joy of the gospel of Christ's resurrection. And so everything about the women and the disciples speaks of fear and confusion and doubt uh, and it's against that backdrop, when you see that and, and appreciate it, that you can also see and appreciate the glory and the beauty and the truth of the resurrection, like light breaking into darkness, like truth speaking into a world of confusion and lies. Now we have to start, as we deal with this text, we should probably start by dealing with verses 9 through 20, since they're there in your Bibles. Uh, and we might all be wondering what to do with them, given the footnote that is there in our Bibles, uh, indicating that some of the earliest manuscripts don't contain these verses. Well, that footnote is certainly correct. Uh, in fact, the, the evidence is pretty much overwhelming uh, that these verses, 9 through 20, were not part of Mark's original gospel. Uh, not only do the best and most reliable manuscripts from multiple independent sources uh, not have these verses in them, uh, but also many early translations and even commentaries by church fathers testify to the fact that these verses were not there in the original Gospel of Mark. And this is actually not a new discovery. It's not something that scholars only found out in the last century. Uh, it, it's something that actually Christians have known about for very many centuries. Uh, although these verses are very old, verses 9 to 20, they are very old, dating from probably the early 100s, uh, if not even earlier. Uh, so basically almost as old as the rest of the scriptures. Uh, it was actually the church, even in that period, uh, that acknowledged these verses are not from Mark himself. Uh, they were added at some point later. The church historian Eusebius, uh, writing in the 300s, uh, said that all of the most accurate copies of the Gospel of Mark, uh, dating back to the original, uh, end at what, what we see in verse 8. Uh, and that this is how the Gospel ends in almost all of the manuscripts, he says, in his day. Uh, the same point was repeated by Jerome. He's the author of the Latin Vulgate. That's the Latin translation of the scriptures, was used for, for very many centuries in the church. Uh, and, and many other church fathers acknowledged the same thing. Uh, but these verses 9 through 20, they are very old. Uh, there are copies of them going all the way back into the second century, that is the 100s. Uh, 
So they, they are old. Many of the early church fathers quoted them. They knew about them. Uh, and, and it seems the church made a conscious decision to nonetheless include these verses in their Bibles, even though knowing uh, that they weren't part of Mark's original gospel. And so what do we do with that? Well, the best explanation uh, for all of this is that the, the original ending of Mark's gospel must have somehow got lost uh, somewhere very, very early in the process, perhaps even in the original manuscript. Uh, the way it ends now in verse 8, uh, when you read it and you imagine the gospel actually ending there, it seems pretty unnatural for, for an ending. Uh, the women do not obey the angel's command. It says they, they ran and hid for they were very afraid. And, and you can imagine just period, end of story. It, it, seems, uh, it seems unnatural. Uh, so it's more likely that probably the original ending was lost or destroyed, as sometimes happens with, with scrolls made on very crude paper. Uh, and then perhaps some scribe or some pastor early in the history of the church, uh, maybe even as far back as the apostolic age, saw this and, and felt, you know, it's still appropriate to, to finish the story. And so he just provides some basic notes uh, about here's what happened afterwards. Uh, you see that that's sort of the character of these last verses. Uh, is there just a concise summary of these are the events that happened afterwards uh, to, uh, uh, to the days of the early church. And so it seems the church just sort of accepted these, the, this second ending as we're going to include this in our Bibles, though we know that, that it's not from Mark himself. Uh, and that's how the church continues to receive uh, these verses today. They're not part of the original gospel, so we wouldn't treat them like Scripture, like the inspired words of God. Uh, but they are a short summary of the events that happened afterwards that, that finish the story for us. Uh, and so we are going to take care as we read them. We don't read them quite the same way as we read the rest of Scripture. For example, uh, we wouldn't build any doctrines on these verses. Some, some uh, radical Pentecostal churches have built their entire doctrine of snake handling uh, off, of, off of this one verse in the Gospel uh, of Mark. Uh, we don't want to do that. If there's no support for something in the rest of Scripture, uh, we wouldn't want to build a doctrine on, on this. Uh, but there's nothing untrue or objectionable in these last verses either. Uh, you do find examples of all of these things happening. In Acts 28, Paul handles snakes um, and, and is not bitten. Um, there are even examples in church history from the apostolic age of, of some drinking poison uh, and not being killed by it. Uh, so, so that's how we're going to receive these last verses. We take it for, for information. We see that it's supported by the testimony of Scripture. Uh, and we accept that if there was an original ending, it, it's just not here anymore. And, and that, too, is under God's providence. So far for that, then, for verses 9 through, through 20. Looking, then, uh, again at verses 1 through 8, uh, what, what is clear is that Mark really wants us to see uh, how, how truly stunning and, and surprising and unexpected the resurrection was and how amazing the truth of the resurrection is, especially over against the backdrop of the kind of world you would expect to find had Jesus not risen. And that's a world marked by fear, by terror, by despair, uh, and by hopelessness. Uh, and you see that in the disciples. You see that as well in these women. And so uh, as we reflect on these verses, we want to see in the first place how, how the grief and confusion of these women is confronted with the words of truth and hope that are spoken by the angel. 
When you read the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark is always very intentional about drawing you into uh, the, the story. He's uh, sometimes known as the, the, the immediately gospel uh, because uh, his gospel is filled with this word immediately. You just find it in almost every chapter. Immediately this happened and then this happened. and It's like he wants to draw you into uh, the story. And he gives you these little details that help you imagine yourself in this story. You remember on Friday this, this uh, man, in, this stranger in, in Gethsemane Gethsemane, uh, who's running around with a loincloth and then is seized and flees away naked. And you just you have a sense of, of what the scene was like uh, had you been there. Uh, and so now, too, we want to allow ourselves to be drawn into the story with, with Mary uh, and, and Martha and the women. Uh, so we find these, these women on the morning after the Sabbath, he, he reminds us. So this is the, the Sunday morning, coming early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body with spices. Uh, and the reason, Mark reminds us, the reason they, uh, or, or at least if you're reading between the lines, the reason that uh, they're there on Sunday morning instead of Saturday morning is because it was the Sabbath on Saturday. They, they couldn't buy the spices. Jesus' death had come so suddenly, it's not like they had uh, spices ready. They didn't know he was going to die. Uh, and then all of a sudden he's dead, and then it's Sunday, or, or sorry, it's Saturday. Uh, and so they can't go to the store in the market and, and buy spices. Uh, so they do that first thing on, on Sunday morning, uh, going to the market, buying the spices, uh, and, and then going to the tomb to finally give Jesus the burial that he ought to have received. Uh, and so you just imagine it from their perspective. Uh, what are they expecting to find in the tomb? They're expecting to find, like the angel says, uh, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. They're expecting to find a brutally mangled, tortured body laying there uh, that, that was once Jesus. And we see with the women, too, they weren't even planning uh, this, this very well. Uh, as they're going there to the tomb, they're talking with each other about who's going to roll away the stone for us. They hadn't even thought about that, that obstacle. Uh, and Mark even points out for us, this was a very heavy stone. This is not something that, that three women are going to be able to, to remove. Uh, and so they, they had made the preparations they could make as women, uh, buying the spices and, and so forth, uh, doing as much as women could do. And yet it begs the question, just like we saw on, on Friday, it begs the question, where were the men? Uh, to, to move the stone, you needed the men. And the men weren't there. The women are doing what they can do uh, to dignify Jesus' body, but the men are, are altogether absent. Uh, so again, even though the women are, are in fear and in shock, just like they were on, on Friday, uh, they're, at least, they're at least thinking about what practical steps can we take to at least honor Jesus' body. The men are still paralyzed in fear. Uh, and, and yet, uh, the, the women too, you see the fear uh, in them. Though they, they at least summoned up the will to do something, uh, yet, yet this whole encounter speaks of, of the fear that was still in the hearts of these women. Uh, now, uh, in case you're wondering, when the text says uh, there was a young man uh, there, uh, it, it doesn't specify that, that it was an angel, uh, but... We want to recognize, inconsistent with, or consistently with the other Gospels, that this is an angel. Mark is, again, telling it from the women's perspective. Uh, they get there, they're not expecting to see an angel. They see uh, what looks to them like a man. Uh, Luke's Gospel actually tells it the same way. At first it was a man, but then later on uh, Luke refers back to the same figure as, as an angel. 
Uh, we should also uh, say something here about uh, the discrepancies between uh, the, some of these Gospels. So Matthew and Mark both only mention this one angel, uh, whereas Luke and John mention two. Uh, some have said, well, this is a contradiction. Obviously, if there were two, the women wouldn't have said there was only one. Or if there was one, they wouldn't have said there were, were two. Uh, but, but this isn't a contradiction. It's simply a testament to the fact that what we're dealing with in these multiple Gospels uh, is we're dealing with multiple first-hand accounts from eyewitnesses. Uh, and they're, and when you're, whenever you're dealing with eyewitnesses, they're going to tell the story differently. Uh, this is exactly, uh, in fact, exactly the sort of variability you would expect to find with multiple eyewitness accounts. Uh, the one mentions there were two men. The other mentions uh, only the first one that they, that they encountered and, and then goes on to tell what that angel said. Uh, additionally, we should bear in mind, uh, none of the gospel writers, uh, other than John, uh, none of them are, are first-hand uh, eyewitnesses. They're all hearing it from uh, the women. Even John is hearing what he heard of from the women. He's hearing it from them. Uh, and so the kind of the story you're going to hear is going to depend on on the questions that you're asking. They say, "Well, we saw a man," and then you're like, "Well, what did he say?" And, and they go on to tell what the man said, uh, and, and they just don't mention the fact that there was another. Well, for critics, for critics of the gospel, uh, the the reality is you, you just can't win uh, when the gospels agree. The critics say, well, this is proof that the church conspired together to fix all the Gospels so that they all agreed. Uh, they cross-checked their stories. Uh, or, or maybe they were all just copying one original source. Uh, and then when they tell it differently, critics say, well, see, that's, that's, they're making it up. Uh, you can't win, but what you're, what you're seeing here is this is what you expect when you're dealing with multiple eyewitness accounts. Uh, so anyways, as they, as they come into the tomb, so they see the stone rolled away, and, and then the women stepped into the tomb, and there inside the tomb, on, on some sort of ledge on the right side of, of the tomb, uh, they see this man sitting there. Uh, and, and immediately, uh, the women are alarmed. So you see the fear in, in them. There's, this is not a heroic uh, story of, of these women who who knew that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Uh, and they were just you know, coming to the tomb to see it empty, to see that he was risen. Uh, no, they didn't expect it at all. Uh, and in fact, they were terrified uh, at seeing this man here. Uh, you see their fear again as well afterwards. Uh, even after the angel tells them that Jesus has risen, uh, the, the message doesn't even register with them. Uh, they run away, they flee, uh, and they tell no one against the angel's command. They tell no one uh, because they were afraid. And so Mark, Mark, as he tells us, he wants us to understand their fear. Uh, even though they have more courage than, than the disciples who didn't even come to the tomb, uh, yet, yet their world is still, they're living in, in the same world as, as they were on, on Friday. A world that's filled with fear, with confusion. Why did our Lord die? Uh, and, and just despair. What are we going to do now? 
Well, it's when you, when you appreciate that fear and you imagine them in that world, uh, then you can also appreciate the power uh, of, of the words spoken by, by this angel, telling uh, the glorious news uh, of the resurrection. And he tells it in such simple facts. Uh, it contrasts so sharply with the, the fear and despair. Uh, the, the words of the angel just shine forth hope. Uh, and not just hope, but truth, a glorious truth that he grounds uh, both in, in the facts of what you see. He says, look, there's an empty tomb. Uh, and then he reminds them, and this is what Jesus told you was going to happen. Uh, so it's just these simple words of truth that break into a world of confusion and despair. He says, do not be afraid. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen. Look, see the place where he, is lay, where he was laid. Uh, and then before the women even have a chance to respond to that, uh, he issues them a, a command. He says, Now go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So there's, there's a simple statement. He has risen. There's the evidence. Look, see the place where, where he was laid. There's a command. Go and tell his disciples. And then finally, there's the remembrance of Jesus' words. He's going to meet you in Galilee just as he told you. Uh, those, uh, the word of Christ that he's referencing uh, just as he told you is, is back in chapter 14, uh, verse 27. Jesus had told them at the Last Supper that he was going to die, that on the third day he would rise, and, and that afterwards he would meet them in Galilee. Well, look at, look at how the hope of the gospel uh, breaks into the fear and the chaos and confusion that has marked our chapters so far. And I know the angel's words didn't yet set in. Uh, it was so shocking, uh, runs so counter to what the women believed that it, it seemed to just not register with them. Uh, but it would, it would register in time and it would change everything. Uh, the simple fact of the resurrection, combined with the promise Jesus had made, grounded then in Jesus' words, uh, changes the story completely. Uh, so far from, from everything uh, going off the rails, as, as it seemed to the disciples, as it seemed to the women, Jesus was, was king. He wasn't supposed to die. The plans have, have failed and collapsed well, so far from that being the case, uh, what we find uh, with, the, with the angel is the word of God spoken before is being fulfilled. Uh, and it will utterly change everything. Uh, the, the fear uh, and confusion uh, that had arisen from the belief that this was not supposed to happen are, are suddenly met with the truth and the hope of the gospel. Uh, and the gospel has the power, especially in the resurrection, the gospel has the power to change everything, to tell a very different story, to redefine what you thought was happening. Uh, and so we see that in, in the angel. Uh, but there's something else that we also want to see in, in the angel's words. Uh, listen again to the command given to the women, where he says, Go and tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. Well, what's, what's being implied here? By implication, Peter is no longer one of the disciples. 
Uh, He's forsaken Christ. He's three times denied Christ, even with an oath. And Christ was clear, uh, as He had spoken before, if you deny Me before men, My Father in Heaven will also deny you. And so Peter is no longer counted as one of Christ's disciples. It may even be that that Peter was not even present with the other disciples, uh, being so ashamed at at what he had done that that he had, uh, so to speak, excommunicated himself from from the disciples. But consider the mercy of Christ, uh, having issued this command to the angel. What the angel says, of course, is is what he's being told to say by by Christ. Uh, And so consider the mercy of Christ here, uh, because what is the intention in Christ's command uh, here spoken through the angel? Go and tell the disciples, and tell Peter too. Tell Peter as well. The intention of Christ is to see Peter restored, to see Peter forgiven. The Lord has seen Peter's repentance. He has heard Peter's bitter weeping and his own shame. He knows Peter's regret. And he hasn't forgotten his disciple and his close friend, nor has he cast him aside. Uh, No, in fact, he he died for that very reason, to purchase Peter for himself, to pay the price for Peter's cowardice and sin. And so when he he rose, uh, one of the first things he does is he tells this angel, go and tell the women to call Peter as well. Uh, He rose with the authority to call Peter back to forgive him and to restore him. And what's true of Peter here is really true of all of the disciples. Uh, though, though Christ singles out Peter here because Peter had explicitly uh, denied him even with an oath, uh, the reality is all of the disciples had forsaken him uh, and proved themselves to not be his disciples when they were scattered. They abandoned him in the garden. Uh, and really, brothers and sisters, what's true of them If you remember back from from Friday, what's true of them is true of us. Uh, Who among us would have have been there on Jesus' side uh, on that day when we see the disciples abandon him, we see the religious leaders attack him, we see the uh, government leaders uh, attack him, we see the the criminals mock him, we see the passers-by mocking him. Uh, We are all indicted. Uh, It's an indictment of the human race and the human heart. And these are the people for whom Christ died and for whom he also rose. Uh, Christ died to save a human race that so clearly needed saving. Uh, And the glory of the resurrection, then, uh, is that Christ is alive. That the people for whom Christ died are the people for whom Christ also rose with new authority and with new hope. Uh, The people He died for to pay the price for their sins are the people He rose for to restore them to the people that they were created to be, to bring them into fellowship and peace and restoration with Himself and also to make peace between them and God the Father. Uh, To to make them into, uh, as, as the Apostle Paul would say later on, to make them into a new creation, a new people, uh, to renew their, their hearts, to change their minds, to fill them with the Spirit of God, to, to make them into children of God, uh, and bring them restored into eternal life. That's, that's what Christ rose for. 
Uh, and that brings us to the last point that we want to see as well in this text, um, that, that doubt and fear and uncertainty that we see on the part of these women, uh, as well as the, the disciples, uh, is replaced by boldness and courage and conviction and also power as the disciples in the church receive the Great Commission and go out boldly to fulfill it. Now, that's not there in, in verses 1 through 8. That's there in, in verses 9 through 20. We would presume that's there uh, in, in however the gospel originally ended, but it's certainly there in the rest of Scripture. Uh, whatever the, the original ending of, of the gospel of Mark would have been, what we do have here in verses 9 to 20 is true. Uh, that is, those are the facts of what happened. Christ met with his disciples as he said he would. Christ rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Uh, Christ encouraged them, and then Christ commissioned them to go and proclaim the gospel to all creation, baptizing those who believe. Uh, And he promises them that they would be accompanied by mighty signs and wonders. And that's exactly what the disciples did. You read the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. Uh, verse 20, uh, even if it was written much, much later, uh, is exactly right. Uh, the disciples went out and preached everywhere, it says, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed that message by accompanying signs. Isn't that just a, a wonderful one-sentence summary of the entire book of Acts? The disciples obeyed Jesus. They proclaimed the gospel to all creation, and Christ accompanied them with mighty wonders and signs. Uh, So that's exactly what happened, and it drives home for us uh, the powerful and the undeniable result of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the transformation that it brought about in the disciples and in the the apostolic church. Uh, It it reminds us of of the way that, that God confirmed the truth of the resurrection with great power, over the next 100 years, through the working of the disciples, uh, who are now transformed men. Uh, They are transformed from cowardly, hiding, fearful disciples uh, to to men who are filled with with the Spirit of God. Uh, And and the church, this gathering of of believers who were once confused and scattered uh, and bewildered, are transformed into the temple of God the place where God is at work uh, in this earth. Uh, Perhaps perhaps, uh, this this, uh, replacement ending, if we're going to call it that, uh, was given in God's providence to say uh, to us and to the rest of the world, just look at what happened afterwards. Look at what happened in the next hundred years uh, in the history of the church. Look at how frightful, doubting, uh, hiding disciples were transformed. Look at the amazing signs and wonders that took place in the early church. Uh, the best proof of the resurrection uh, is not even the integrity and reliability of the eyewitnesses, though that certainly is a compelling evidence. Uh, but the best proof is the undeniable fact of what happened afterwards, how the church afterwards exploded with power into a world that was hostile to the church, a world that wanted to do everything it could, both Jews and Romans, to extinguish the church, uh, and how the the Spirit of Christ was at work in the church. And not just then, how the Spirit of Christ 
is at work today as well, continuing to bring transformation and power into the lives of Christ's disciples, bringing them from darkness to light, bringing them from fear to faith and confidence in Him, bringing them from from death and enslavement to sin, to, to life and righteousness and obedience to the will of God. You know, you can question all day long the the testimony of the eyewitnesses, and and many critics have done so, uh, trying to to pull them apart, trying to find holes in in their testimony. Uh, Well, the the eyewitnesses aren't there anymore to defend uh, themselves. They've only left us with what they saw and, and what they wrote for us. But you cannot deny what happened next. And if you want to see the evidence of the the risen life of Christ, this final section of Mark, whether it's inspired or not, is saying, look at what Christ has done since then, and look at what Christ is doing today. Look at what Christ did ever since the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out. Look at the nations being gathered in by the power of God. Look at the boldness and courage and faith of Christ believers throughout the world today, facing every obstacle, facing all kinds of hostility, and doing so with faith, with boldness, with a perspective that can only come from God. This is a change that can only come from the risen Christ. Christ is risen, Christ is reigning, and Christ's Spirit is working powerfully in the midst of His church. And so, brothers and sisters, as we also on this Easter celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we don't just celebrate it as as a historical fact, as something that happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, We celebrate it for all that it means for us today, uh, how it continues to shape and direct and transform our lives today from fear and doubt and confusion to faith and courage and perspective as we ourselves live in the light and the joy of the resurrection of Christ. Amen. Let's respond to the word of 